Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. We have seen many a person attempt to violate the Constitution of the United States. It's um, almost become like a, like a game. You know, we certainly see people try and violate the, the word of, of the Supreme Court. You can't have any more moratoriums on evictions. Well, let's just keep it going, said uh, Joe Biden. You can't pay off people's student loan debt. Well, let's just try it, said Joe Biden. It happens again and again. And then you see other things kind of happen. The idea of just, well, seeing what you can get away with. Is that what we're really seeing in New Mexico? Is that the story here? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. This was the headline. New Mexico governor orders suspension of open and concealed carry of guns in Albuquerque. What in the bloody, bloody heck is she talking about? Let me bring in Guy Relford. He is a Second Amendment attorney by trade. Relford Law is where you find him. And and Guy, I, I want to just start with exactly what she said. I, I have uh, the, the, this video. It's sometimes a little hard to hear, but it, it's, it's what I have. Where she's explaining, this is Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, Democrat from New Mexico, explaining why she has the right to suspend open and concealed carry because, as she says it, no right is absolute. Listen. With one exception, and that is if there's an emergency, and I've declared an emergency for a temporary amount of time, I can invoke additional powers. No constitutional right in my view, including my oath, is intended to be absolute. There are restrictions on free speech. There are restrictions on my freedoms. In this emergency, this 11-year-old and all these parents who have lost all these children, they deserve my attention to have the debate about whether or not in an emergency we can create a safer environment. Because what about their constitutional rights? I took an oath to uphold those two. And if we ignore this growing problem without being bold, I've said to every other New Mexican, your rights are subrogated to theirs. And they are not, in my view. That is a pretty remarkable thing to hear, Guy Relford, that my oath is not absolute. Uh, but the Constitution is, correct? Uh, well, yeah. Yeah, it is shocking. And, uh, you know, I, I've been talking about this quite a bit on social media, but, you know, she, she has uh, one thing more or less correct. She says constitutional rights are not absolute. And you hear a lot of politicians uh, quote the language even out of the Heller decision uh, that found that there is an individual right to bear arms protected by the Second Amendment. And Justice Scalia, in that opinion, said, you know, our, our, our opinion here. Uh, finding there's an individual right to bear arms should should not be taken to mean that that right is completely unrestricted. And long-held limitations, uh, long-upheld limitations on the right to bear arms uh, are not set aside by this opinion. And so politicians like this governor will seize on that language and basically try to argue, as she just did, that because a right is not completely unrestricted, that I can impose whatever restrictions I want. And that's not how that works. 
point just last June from the Supreme Court in the Bruin decision. And in Bruin, it said, listen, whether a particular limitation on a right is constitutional or not is determined by the text of the constitutional freedom we're talking about. In other words, what do the words mean? What does it protect? And then secondly, it does the proposed restriction is that consistent with the long history and tradition of the regulation of this right in this country going all the way back to the founding and before. And in that same Bruin decision, Tony, as you well know, because we've talked about it and you've talked about it independently, that the Bruin court in uh, this, at the Supreme Court said specifically that, that the right to bear arms, that is to carry a firearm outside the home, is a fundamental right protected by the Second Amendment and that the text, history, and tradition test um, that handed down in Bruin applied to the issue of whether you can carry a gun in public very, very, very clearly, and this was a six to three opinion, uh, comes out uh, in favor of the right to bear arms outside the home. So we just had the Supreme Court last June, barely a year ago, come out and say the right to bear arms outside the home is protected and a proposed restriction on it is unconstitutional. And even New York's licensing system that allowed some people to carry a handgun and other people not right. under a discretionary licensing system was unconstitutional. How in the world where, where a limitation that said only some people not having the ability to carry guns outside the home was unconstitutional. Does she think, this governor think, that she can give, get away with a total ban on carrying firearms? It's ludicrous if you if you have any understanding well, of what the Supreme Court said on this issue. Let's take a moment. I mean, this was how CNN uh, reported it, um, that the emergency order includes the suspension of open and concealed carry laws in Albuquerque and uh, I think it's Bernalillo County, temporarily banning the carrying of guns on public property with certain exceptions, according uh, to the statement. And she refers to it as a public health emergency. It reminds me of the Clint Eastwood movie where you had to give up your guns when you walked into town. Uh, I don't know if it was Unforgiven. Was, was that it? I think I think I got it right. Gene Hackman. Yeah, Unforgiven. Um, uh, the, 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 I think the story here that kind of got people, that kind of shocked people, was the idea of public health emergency. I had uh, Congressman Ted Lieu, who is a progressive's progressive. I had David Hogg, who is this manufactured celebrity uh, in the anti-gun movement, both saying a public uh, health uh, measure or a public health emergency doesn't strip away the Constitution, doesn't uh, you know uh, uh, supersede the Constitution, which is weird because they totally thought that way vis-a-vis COVID, but now all of a sudden they don't. They happen to be correct. Uh, is the public health emergency just the new way to uh, to to try and get someone's uh, desires, sec- anti Second Amendment desires, uh, accomplished? Well, it, it is. It's a, it's an attempted way around not being able to get legislation passed that restricts our Second Amendment rights. So executives and the executive branch, including through their health departments, have said, "Ah, we'll just issue emergency orders um, under a, a an alleged public health emergency." Uh, but one thing's been very clear, and we had courts all over the country rule this way in the context of COVID, Tony, that you brought up, which is, for instance, um, where where the government tried to say you couldn't go to the, the church uh, or synagogue or other place of worship of your choice to worship during COVID. We had courts all over the country strike those restrictions down to say, no, I'm sorry, the free exercise of religion is the free exercise of religion. And, and let's face it, I mean, if, if the government can, can suspend the Constitution in any the, in, in the emergency to curtail your rights, 
The government will create an emergency in order to curtail your rights. That's not how the Constitution works. The Constitution doesn't say, unless there's an emergency, the right to bear arms shall be shall not be infringed. And, and so it doesn't work that way. You can't just say, oh, emergency, the Constitution doesn't exist anymore. The Constitution was, was meant to, to be enforced even in an emergency. So let's let's go back to something, because, because you know, I, I often, when I refer to the Second Amendment, I'm not a, a gun guy. Talking to Guy Relford, RelfordLaw.com, Second Amendment attorney, host of the Gun Guy Show on 93.1 FM WIBC. Uh, he's written books uh, about firearms. He trains people on, on firearms. And I am very clear to admit that I am not a gun guy. I'm a Second Amendment guy. I'm not a gun guy. These are fundamentally different things. You are are a Second Amendment guy and a gun guy, trained uh, lawyer as you are. When we talk about rights, right, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, as the Second Amendment says, that sounds like something that is absolute. But we were discussing, and you were mentioning earlier, that rights are not necessarily absolute. How do you answer that question when asked? Are rights absolute? Well, uh, in my heart of hearts, Tony, I say the rights are 100% absolute. And, and when the Constitution and the Second Amendment says specifically the right to bear arms shall not be infringed, then that's what the founders meant. However, the Supreme Court disagrees with me on that point. And that's the law of the land. And as an attorney, uh, I'm, I'm being misguided and I'm not being true to my, 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 my clients um, if I don't direct people toward what the state of the law is today. And, the, and, the, and the, the unmistakable truth is the Supreme Court, as Justice Scalia said in the Heller decision, has said that the right to bear arms is not unrestricted completely and totally. For instance, um, if we went to court tomorrow and challenged the restriction that said a violent felon cannot possess a firearm under state or federal law, we would lose that appeal. And if our argument was, oh, no, the Second Amendment is absolute, which, again, in my heart of heart, I believe to be true, the courts disagree with me. The Supreme Court has disagreed with me. The Indiana courts have disagreed with me on that point. They say, no, violent felons, violent criminals have long been restricted or prohibited from carrying firearms in this country going all the way back to the founding and before, including in your, in, under English law. Therefore, that's a restriction that survives a constitutional challenge. So, so while I believe constitutional rights are absolute, not just the Second Amendment, but others as well, um, the courts have clearly disagreed with me on that point, and that's the state of the law today. So we, we've, we've taken a look at what's happening there in in New Mexico, people are already rallying, carrying their firearms. They're not going to pay any attention to this, that the governor is completely out of her tree. Uh, this idea that somehow an oath is not absolute and uh, she owes it to the people to try and save them by restricting uh, pe- people's rights. Uh, the NRA has come out against this. Others have come out against this. Does this even require lawsuits, even though I know they've already taken place? Or is this the kind of thing where the Supreme Court could just look at it and I don't know who oversees things in in New Mexico? That actually be a, a more of like the circuit courts. Uh, but someone could say, yeah, this ain't going to fly. Does the Supreme Court act proactively here or are they going to wait for something to come to them? Yeah, they've got to wait for something to come to them. It's just the way the system works. But a lower court can, can issue uh, a, a preliminary injunction very, very quickly. Um, and I anticipate that happening, uh, depending, of, of course, on what court we're talking about. But, um, but, but the Supreme Court really can't just weigh in, even uh, with something as egregious as this, 
because this is clear again anybody who reads the bruin decision that just came down last june um and, and thinks that this is constitutional is crazy and the idea that an emergency somehow validates it uh, just doesn't just doesn't hold true for anybody who's looked at this area of the law now that brought me to a, a question about why in the world she would do it guy relford relfordlaw.com also to a project to a project.com if you want to get involved with uh, protection and defense of the second amendment to number two letter a to a project.com why would she do it was this a test balloon you know, it's the left. They just try. What can they get away with? What can they get away with? So they try these things. Uh, you can catch the full interview over at Rumble. Rumble.com slash Tony Katz. Rumble.com slash Tony Katz. And you can hear the rest of the conversation specifically about this subject. My thanks to a Guy Relford. RelfordLaw.com. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. Governor Holcomb heading to Japan. Uh, people get bothered when he takes these trips to try and bring back business. I, it's one of the few things that I think Holcomb does that he's 100% correct on. Tony Katz, good to be with you. Gary Dick joins us from InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter, at IIB, at Gary Dick, G-E-R-R-Y, at Gary Dick on the Twitter box, Xbox as well. Um, this is about manufacturing. The auto manufacturing that we have, is the objective to bring more people to build cars here? Or is it about making sure that the people we have, like Subaru, stay? Dude, I think all of the above, but in particular, uh, the training, the retraining, and uh, the things needed to uh, service the auto industry that's here now, uh, Tony. Uh, but in, in addition to that, and, and you, when you talk about Japan and the relationship with Indiana, everybody knows Japan is a big trading partner with Indiana. Some Many don't know how big, though. 302 Japanese businesses doing business in the state now. In fact, it's the highest dollar investment. Indiana gets the highest dollar investment of Japanese businesses per capita than anywhere else in the United States. So it's a big uh, trading relationship there. But in particular on manufacturing, as you suggest, whether it's Subaru, Toyota, whatever the case might be, and the governor is meeting uh, here within the next uh, 24 hours, either has met or will meet with both, both Subaru and Toyota, uh, it's a, it's about workforce. That is a big theme of this uh, trip, how to uh, meet the needs of uh, companies that exist here and those they're trying to get in Indiana as well. So when, when he goes on the, these trips, and he's done them before, he, he gets heat for, for, for taking them. Did, did Mitch Daniels not take international trips? Did, did Mike Pence not take international trips? Uh, did, did Evan Bayh ever take a trip somewhere and say, hey, uh, bring, bring your business to, to Indiana? Or is this a very Holcomb-specific thing? No, it's, if you look at, at, at Governor Daniels, certainly did, uh, Governor Pence, although today much more prevalent than it used to be. You mentioned Evan Bayh. I think back to uh, the 1980s when Indiana got its first Japanese plant. Uh, at the time, it was uh, Subaru Isuzu, now Subaru of Indiana Automotive. It was controversial, even though it was millions of dollars in investment, thousands of jobs, and ultimately that plant has been such an economic driver for uh, the Lafayette region, but really the entire state. It was controversial, and and politicians who took trade trips back then, and there weren't that many, really got heat. 
because of, uh, frankly, there was anti-Japanese sentiment. Uh, there was a, a, a bitterness uh, among uh, the, the union rank and file and others who lost jobs and those types of things. That has changed in a big way. And uh, these trade trips that uh, happen uh, now on a rather frequent basis are, are really just part of doing business if you're in the business of trying to attract uh, and keep investment in your state. Talking to Gary Dick from InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter, at X at IIB. Indiana has more than 300 yep. Japanese-owned or affiliated companies. They employ 55,000 people, as we've been uh, d- discussing here. Is it Indiana-specific? I mean, Japan has a lot of investment uh, across the United States, certainly in Tennessee and, 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 and other places. Mm-hmm. Is, is there something – are we utilizing that to try and bring more? And is this trip about specifically automotive or uh, about an outreach into some other areas? Uh, yes, it is specific to automotive manufacturing, but beyond that – there are some other areas, these, some of these new economy areas, uh, Tony. Hydrogen, you talk about alternative energy. Uh, hydrogen is a big focus uh, of the United States government and others. Indiana is putting a bid in to become a hydrogen hub, which would uh, happen potentially up in northwest Indiana, partnership with Michigan and Illinois. And that is part of this trip uh, in terms of discussion uh, with uh, company officials and executives uh, uh, in Japan. Japan on, on this trip uh, as well. They'll be talking about, actually, the governor, when he gets back into the United States, he'll be at a big uh, conference at Salesforce out in California where they'll be talking about uh, artificial intelligence uh, from a government perspective and those types of things. But uh, really a focus, oh, I should mention, too, uh, Tony, semiconductors obviously becoming a big focus here in the state of Indiana. Several big companies have announced investment plans here. That also is on the, uh, the agenda on this Japan trip. All of this when we talk about cars in the backdrop of uh, the UAW, United Auto Workers, possibly yeah. going on strike. They voted to go on strike at all of them, GM, Ford, and Stellantis. GM put an offer out. Uh, the union has scoffed. Stellantis put an offer out. I assume the union has scoffed. Uh, we have got a lot of employees of the big three here in Indiana. What is the status? What are people bracing for? And how are these towns going to be impacted? Well, it, or, number one, it's getting down to brass tax, as they say, uh, midnight Thursday evening uh, is the strike deadline. Uh, as you mentioned, offers have been put on the table. The United Auto Workers Union is asking uh, for uh, a big pay uh, increase, 40% wage increase over four years, shorter working hours. They want to uh, get paid for 40 hours, but only work 32 hours. They want to get back some of the benefits they lost during the recession back in 2008. This at a time when the uh, automakers are investing billions of dollars in this big transition to uh, electric vehicles, to the electrification of the auto industry. So uh, both sides, there's no indication that they are getting any closer as this deadline looms. This would have a big impact, obviously, in Indiana, in places like Fort Wayne with the the General Motors truck plant. You've got big Stellantis investment uh, in Kokomo. Uh, and other places throughout the state. And it would potentially, if this does happen, have an impact on on car prices. You know, certainly supply chain issues have impacted car prices. They've gone up dramatically uh, in recent months. 
uh, a strike, certainly a strike of any length, uh, would uh, would add to the price of a car and make cars more difficult to get as well. So lots of implications there uh, should, in fact, that uh, that come to pass. The strike is coming. I mean, I absolutely believe that to be true as well. Gary Dick, InsideIndianaBusiness.com. On Twitter, IIB, you're appreciated. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. for mayor in Indianapolis is on. The question before us is what does Indianapolis want? We've seen what comes from two terms of Mayor Joe Hogsett, who's now running for a third term. We certainly saw in a primary that Jefferson Shreve, Republican candidate for mayor, was willing to put in the time, the dollars, and deliver a message. And remember, so goes the capital city, so may very well go Indiana as a whole. But when it comes to differences, well, what are they exactly? What are the plans for our city? Tony Katz, good to be with you. Jefferson Shreve joins us right now, Republican candidate for mayor in Indianapolis. Shreve, S-H-R-E-V-E, ShreveforMayor.com. And, you know, uh, sir, it's good to speak to you. When, when you go to your website and you look at the issues, it makes a very interesting statement. Indianapolis used to be the jewel of the Midwest. We can do it again. What do you mean? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I think Indy was better and stronger not a lifetime ago, but an administration ago. I mean, I was born in this city. Uh, I had my first job downtown in this city where there was an energy and a vibrancy and stuff going up. That's just different than it's been over the past uh, four or eight years. Um, I mean, I remember the excitement. Like going back in 12 when we landed the Super Bowl and in the, in the Ballard years, I am not talking about stepping back in a time machine, just an administration. In our downtown, our city, the palpable feel in terms of what people see when they wake up and turn on the news every day is different than what it was not too many years ago. When we talk about safety in, in, in the city, what you'll hear from uh, Team Hogsett is that, well, look at what's happening across the country. This is a real problem across the country, and this is all because of COVID. How do you respond? As an excuse. I mean, COVID's in our rearview window. Um, I mean, we just can't hang everything on COVID. We have 700 officers that we've brought on and 800 and some that we've, we've lost. Mayor Hogsett has fewer officers on the force today then when he came in on January 1st of 2016, and he promised he was going to add 150 then. And the problem, the challenge on the trajectory that we are on is going to get harder and harder. And, and what, what's the consequence of that, Tony? I, I, I mean, they're not even prosecuting or um, uh, pursuing auto thefts. Uh, they're talking about disbanding the, uh, the, the arson unit. We just swore in a new recruit class two weeks ago. We've gone down from, I think, 32 officers. We've already lost a third of them. I mean, we can't sustain this. Talking to Jefferson Shreve. He is the Republican candidate for mayor in Indianapolis. Shreve, S-H-R-E-V-E, ShreveforMayor.com. I was going through your website and something auto-played. I apologize uh, for that. You have a series of things on, on 
under issues, and public safety is one of them. Uh, of course, I would be uh, foolish not to note that when you talked about uh, firearms and guns, um, you took a lot of flack and a lot of heat for a plan that was very much like uh, Joe Hogsett's uh, plan regarding firearms and certainly the idea of creating legislation within the city that would, uh, in to many people, violate the Second Amendment uh, is, is not a, a valuable consideration. But when we look at public safety, what are the valuable considerations? Is it just about hiring more cops? Where's, where is uh, issue number one for uh, a uh, Shreve administration day one? Issue number one is about leadership. Issue number one is about supporting the men and women on the force of the IMPD. It's not just about hiring more cops because the good ones are leaving us faster than we can hire. we got to retain the talent that we've got and then backfill the void, the deficit, that this administration over nearly eight years has been unable to fill. We've got we are authorized for 1,843 officers, and we're down around 1,500. Issue number one is providing the leadership and the support to the force that we've got so they, they don't keep heading for the door or the next county over. And you're somebody who's going to hire a public safety director as opposed to being your own, as Joe Hogshead has done for the last eight years? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, a, that, that's a proven model. I mean, I, look, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a former cop. I'm not a former firefighter. Uh, I, I don't hold myself out as the expert there. I'm the executive. I mean, I've got the managerial experience, and my aim is to stand up the team of talent, that executive talent that can get it done on all fronts. But the most important hire, day one, and I'm day one is November 8th, not January 1st, is that that public safety director that brings that experience so I can say to he or she, here's the targets that we got to start moving this county into quarter by quarter by quarter. Homicide rates down, down, down. Solve rates on homicides up, up, up. Staffing counts to this point, to that point, to that point. So then we can start focusing on the the nonviolent crimes, the property level crimes, the auto thefts investigations, the broken window theory of policing, that isn't a theory. It plays right through to the quality of life here in Marion County that at the moment is driving good people away, (laughs) I think like you, up to Hamilton County. Uh, You talk about managerial experience. Uh, Break it down for me. I don't know if people know uh, your history in business. Give me me the, uh, the elevator pitch. I started a company right out of college. Oh, I had I had uh, a little bit of work experience for a shopping center developer in Indy when I was in college. But I started a business uh, ground up, started really small, grew it into the largest self-storage company headquartered in Indiana, traded it into the largest self-storage company in the world. I'm still a shareholder and on their board of directors. But what you learn from that, is that it takes a team to build an organization that today is in the S&P 500. It takes talent, and the success of my mayoralty will be a function of the talent that I can attract to the 25th floor and to run the key departments of this city. I can't do it alone. Uh, I, I would say to you, sir, talking to Jefferson Shreve, a Republican candidate uh, for mayor in Indianapolis, Shreve, S-H-R-E-V-E, Shreve for mayor.com, that I know your story. 
And uh, the people I speak to talk about the fact that you do have talent. That's what made this whole thing about uh, your firearms plan so problematic because that didn't seem like you were leading the charge. That seems like you were listening to some other people leading a charge. And my advice, to the extent that I give advice, is stop listening to those people. But one of the things that when we talk about how this, this race is shaping up, there seem to be subjects, you know, we talk about safety first as, as the subject, and you have a section about infrastructure and a section about vision, and certainly a vision for the city we'll have to get into another time. But I find it interesting that you have a, a topic, the topic of abortion on your website. Sir, why is a mayoral candidate in Indianapolis talking about abortion? Because the opposing side is making a nationalized issue out of something that's just got nothing to do with the job of running the city of Indianapolis. And so I'll respond to it because it's just a crap side of politicking from uh, an opposing candidate that's got nothing else to run on. So that Joe Hogsett has made abortion a, a front and center subject you you responded what is what does the response say it's a video uh that you have it's only 54 seconds long uh in in 54 seconds what does it say it says look you know my opponent's making an issue out of something that's got nothing to do with the job that i'm applying for you're running the city of indianapolis there's nothing to do with abortion policy and i've said I wouldn't utilize any city resources in the pursuit of uh, 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 prosecuting abortion policy. That's not the job that I'm applying for. That is another another set of jobs for other people and not for this candidate for mayor. We've got big issues to challenge this mayor. My my, my plate and our public safety director's plate and our DPW plate is going to be really full with the stuff that a mayor can do and fix and change, and abortion policy isn't it. Uh, before before I let you go, I still have about a, a minute, sir. Um, we know the the public safety conversation is is a big part uh, of it. Um, what's number two? If the, well, if the safety said, conversation is number one, what's people, number two? Uh, Tony, when you said I was listening to other people, I've said from the, the out no, that I want to support our police. And some of the people I'm listening to were Superintendent Doug Carter and our police chief who uh, oppose the uh, the repeal of the permitting requirements. And so, I mean, that's where, that's where some of that comes from. I mean, I don't think pulling a permit for concealed carry was too arduous. I mean, we had that in place for decades and decades and decades. And so I am listening to other people. And I don't know how you can lead if you don't listen. Two ears, one mouth. And that's the way I will manage as mayor. I what think the argument would be, sir. Tony, uh, you've, got to, you've got to solve the foundational challenge of public safety so I can then focus our city on growing it, on economic development. I mean, that's the part of the job that I think I can really help our city with and will enjoy leading. But if this city doesn't feel safe for people to lay their head in, to wake up into, and to, to, to go about business in, it's hard to develop this city. But number two, I, I don't disagree, sir. I don't disagree uh, that uh, the, the safety matters. I don't believe that the violation of Second Amendment rights gets us there. And while Doug Carter, the superintendent of the Indiana State Police, is a very, very good man, he is simply wrong uh, on this. You have to now accept the fact that people are pushing back on you on this subject. And I just for for this topic. Um, I, 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 you must realize that damage has been done and that damage has to be made up 
for somehow in this race. You see that, right? I'm listening. Jefferson Shreve, candidate for mayor in Indianapolis. I appreciate uh, uh, Jefferson uh, taking the time uh, to be with us, uh, Mr. Shreve. And, and, and look, I, I get it. I get it, 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 I get it. And I know what I'm dealing with in Indianapolis. I mean, if, if I was a voter in Indy, I know where I'd be. The city could not be in worse shape. And by the way, on the abortion subject, I wholeheartedly agree. I've been discussing this. It is so strange, awkward, and weird that that uh, uh, Joe Hogsett has made this a, a, an, an issue. This is a national story. This has nothing to do with your local politics. Nothing. But they don't care. What are they going to run on? The Democrats in Indianapolis cannot run on safety, cannot run on security, cannot run on a vision, cannot run on anybody's life being better. So what do they run on? Abortion. It's pathetic. They're pathetic. And yet, uh, you know as well as I do that a lot of people in Marion County are totally going to buy into this. They're totally going to they're totally going to do it. Oh, well, you know, got to vote for got to vote for Joe Hogsett. Abortion. Indianapolis has nothing to do with the abortion debate. Nothing. Your kids are not safe walking to school, walking to an event. You're not safe. Your spouse is not safe walking downtown. That's the ball game. Abortion? Man, this town, Indianapolis Democrats don't want you safe in the womb or out. I mean, that's how I would, that's how I would phrase it. That's how I would go about it. Oh, yes. Um, He is, he is absolutely, Hogshead is absolutely beatable. 100% beatable Uh, the question is um uh, will he be beat and i don't think uh it is um it is valuable to be engaging in things that aren't practical when it comes to the idea that you want to you know we have to have permits again you shouldn't be able to get a weapon until you're 21 the constitution is my permit and that uh, someone in a police department somewhere is opposed to that, that's not the problem. Again, I'll say it, Doug Carter is an unbelievably good man. I like him a lot. I just think he's wrong on the permit subject. I've said so, I'll say so again, and if I saw the man today, I'd have a cigar with him. Like, I think he's that good of a guy. I just think he's, he's, he's wrong on this. And his point of view is that, you know, I'm trying to do what's best for... Uh, the members of my department. I get that, except that's not what's best for the citizen, and it must be citizen first. And so I I have a much, much different view. Much different view. It's okay. I just would not have made it a policy as as Jefferson did. Even with that, I, I think that if, if you look at this race and, and if you live in Marion County, you have to ask yourself, what has been happening for the last eight years You really want four more years of this? Four more years of this? How could anybody want four more years of this? That's that's the question. That's really it. I think it's pretty fundamental. We will hopefully get more of a chance to speak to uh, Jefferson Shreve, Shreve from Mayor.com. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. In the end, I'm not sure why... This September 11th, I felt differently than I have in years past being on the air and and discussing it. Tony Katz, 
Tony Katz today. My being in Washington, D.C. on September 11, 2001. Uh, that drive home from work in downtown that was normally 10, 20 minutes. It was three hours. Um, the military presence I saw on, on the streets, the people who ran for their lives from the J. Edgar Hoover building. I mean, the, the building wasn't threatened, or, or maybe they did uh, get a bomb threat, and I never knew about it. Just just pouring out of the building and just the, the sense of surrealism. But also, I, I, I state to, to you that I, I have never once thought, really, I don't think I've ever thought, maybe, you know what, maybe I have at one time and I'm just different now. I don't think that if you were in the Midwest, you felt it differently than I did. Maybe for somebody who was there in, in, on Wall Street, and watched a plane hit a tower, you have some something different than the rest of us. I, I, I wouldn't deny that. I just, I'm just not about to sit here and tell you, oh, I have a better understanding of 9-11 because I was in Washington, D.C. that day. I don't, I, I don't believe that true. I don't think that somehow your humanity is any less or your connection to what happened, your disgust and your anger and your sadness is, is any less or really any more. In, in, in that regard, because of geography. What I believe is that, even though I just, whatever in my head, I just I wasn't in the mood. It doesn't matter if you're in the mood. It must be discussed. The idea of terrorism must be discussed. The idea of people who hate the nation and hate the value and content of America must be discussed. They may hate even things that we do. Look what happened and how do we prevent it from happening going forward? How do we prevent it from a, yes, policy perspective? How do we prevent it from making sure we are safe and secure and militarily strong? How do we prevent it? That can't happen if you don't share it. Share the audio, share the video, share the story, sit down and talk to your kids. It's the only way we remember to stay strong is to have these conversations even when we don't want to because that's what responsible people do. I'll catch you tomorrow, everyone. I'm Tony Katz. Take care.